0: Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. A little bit of a difficult thing to look at this thing in the year 2050 and beyond 2050, because we say saying that the world will be different. A lot of speakers have said, no, mining will look different, hopefully by then we would have benefited our economy, created a lot of jobs, do a lot of things like that. At the same time, there's a journey there, and that journey is heavily reliant on what we do now and what we do in the mining sector. If we go to the next slide, it gives me an opportunity, the reason why I say it's an opportunity, is because we do this type of work all over the world. We have for many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, and then these days in the countries, Middle East and North Africa, flat flow models that we use to try and understand where we stand now and where we will stand 30 years in the future. Uh, my co-author collaborator for many years, 15 years Zane, and he's here in the audience, Zane is much younger than me, and he's beginning to be recognized as a freight flow mother in all of the emerging world, and I thank him for that. Also because I'm getting old, and I said in a previous presentation a few weeks ago, my big dream in the world is before I die to see a refreshed and revived railway. So hurry up, otherwise Zane will have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So so (laughs) I keep on saying that. So we do this in this way. Uh, Out of that, we we get, and somebody's referred to that about South Africa's freight demand. We look at where we are today we forecast it in the future. I've superimposed for you a map of South Africa on France and Germany. We're about the size of France and Germany. They've got a GDP that's 18 times bigger than us. So if we talk about freight demand and how difficult it is and what important critical commodity uh, ton kilometers is in our economy. We need to understand that, you can say it in a different way, our GDP is 0.4 percent of the world, we have 1.2 percent of the world's ton kilometers in this country. If you didn't know it, 2 percent of the world's railways is in this country. Uh, We oversupplied, I'll come back to that. In fact, dry bulk transport, dry bulk exports and imports in the world Look at our GDP, about 5% of all dry bulk in the world touches South Africa. A very important thing in our economy if you look at it. If you look at the it, generic role of rail, I always find it interesting. I always confer, uh, refer back to Theodore Levitt. If you didn't read Marketing Opia," written in 1960, probably one of the best business articles ever written. He said that we don't need quarter-inch drills, we need quarter-inch holes, and I come back to that. As far as heavy oil is concerned, strangely enough, if you read Marketing Myopia, he starts his whole argument with railways and he ends it with railways. He gives many examples, gas, electricity and so on, but he has a thing about railways when he wrote this article. Uh, we, we used to think of this hole that we want to fill this transportation. We now know it is value change. A lot of speakers have referred to that. I'm very happy about that. And we can either do one of two things. And I'm gonna to get you to that. You can either enable something or you can improve it. Now, if you have a value chain like this, the one on the left-hand side, you improve a value chain that exists. Come from a farm, you have wheat, from the wheat you go to a miller and miller goes to a baker. It happens whether you have a railway or not, but the railway can make it better for certain parts of that journey. Or a railway is an enabler. Without it, you basically don't have an industry. This is what we're talking about now, talking about bulk export industries. I just want you to think about the fact that might be true, but it doesn't mean that heavy oil can't make a contribution on the left-hand side if we look at the year 2050. It does not mean that. Not at all. Uh, we do in our freight model, we start off extraction. We do this to say, how does transport behave and where's the market spaces for railway? So if, if you take for example extraction... If you have wheat, it comes from extraction, it goes to intermediate manufacturing, or you can import wheat, you can export wheat. The same with mining, you can export it. Therefore, you have bulk commodity uh, solutions that you have, with a very specific type of railway, or you can move it in your internal economy, like for instance, iron ore that you can move for Cishon to Newcastle. That will have a typical type of rail solution, or you can import mining, like hard coking coal for Regis Bay. And intermediate manufacturing that usually is siding to siding traffic, what the railway do. Maybe steel coils from Thunderbale goes down to uh, Volkswagen. And so you go on, and then you get from final manufacturing to consumption, it's usually containerized, it usually moves between distribution centers. So, which of these are rail friendly, if you think about it? Uh, we found five market spaces large volume export mining. Very rail friendly, we know that, I put a question mark there because of the questions that we are asking about the 20 million tons that's missing uh, domestic mining, uh, we know how to do that, we've been doing it for many years, but there is also some issues these days with capacity, intermediate is your to siding traffic, uh, road has taken over a lot of that, we don't do any finished palletised uh, movement in South Africa, some of it is rail friendly, all those trucks on the N1 and the N3, about half of them we calculate can go on rail, and then some of the rural traffic. Uh, in, in deference to Bram Leroux, uh, who most of you know, a uh, great man that worked in this space, I think he called that export machines, and we call that GFP. It's more or less where we've gone, and I'm going to refer to them in such a way just now and where rail's competency is. This is important. How do we determine the rail competency? Where, what is rail-friendly? Now, if you have, like Zane Scott, a freight flow model of 1.5 million lines, 83 commodities between all districts in South Africa, now, on all modes with the cost involved in it, 30 years forecasted, eventually you learn certain things. Uh, rail-friendly means density of terminals. If you load everything at the same place and unload it at the same place, it becomes rail-friendly. Density of lines, if this line has got a lot of traffic on it. And then uniformity of product. If the product always looks the same. Those three things tells you, this thing is rail-friendly. Now, if you know everything that moves, it becomes easy to determine what is rail-friendly. Distance does play a role, but not always. And I'll I'll show you why I say that. Now, what is heavy oil? Heavy is rail-friendly on steroids. If you can tick those boxes over and over and over again with huge volumes, you should be able to have, uh, here we not only in mining, in all cases where you tick those boxes. Uh, I just want to say something about distance. If you tick those bottles over and over and over again, there's a massive volume of things. 100 kilometers is fine. If I have a hole here and I've got a place here that I want to fill something and it's 100 million tons, you can have a real solution. If it is as simple as that. So distance play some sort of a role, but not a complete role. So we've done this for South Africa, and what we've done here is important, because people keep on talking about market share. Be careful about what I say here. 30% of all 10 kilometers of Finnish-bellified should be on the road. It conforms to everything that I've just said. It comes from the middle of Cape Town, it goes to the middle of Johannesburg, there's lots of it, there's no reason why it shouldn't be on the road whatever it is, especially for everything in containers, there's no reason not to be on the rail. Uh, about 1% ease. Of intermediate manufacturing, the siding to siding traffic, about 30% should be on the rail, only 10% ease. If you look at domestic mining, there's been references to it. Two-thirds should be on the rail, only one-third is on the rail. That third is missing there is tragic. It's tragic because we solved the first column that you see there, problem, with building the n in N1. We solved that. It is not the most economical solution, but we've done something about it. We've not done something about the fact that we cannot move uh, product and commodities on our rural roads. Therefore, we are destroying them. It's as simple as that, because we didn't do it. And then you get the export (laughs) mining. Now, that is the market share of export mining. But, there's a big but around it, the orange line should be much higher. That is the problem. The problem there is, is this missing product, there's missing product, and I'll come back to that. So this is what market share should be like. And what has happened over the last year, since 1937, uh, we've lost a lot. Uh, the one that we lost the least in is mining, the 40% of market share has disappeared. In recent times we thought, ah, it's going to get better, but it didn't. Uh, by the year 2010, 2011, 2012, I saw slight improvements, but it didn't happen. We you know why? And we've invested in trucks. The black line there is the GDP of South Africa. The red line is heavy trailers. And truckers are clever. They buy more trailers than horses, so they can load the trailer and for horse arrive, and takes it away. Huge, huge, huge efficiencies that's here. So we have invested in the roads and trucks. The country is not invested in the railways. So later on when I talk about that, if you want to point any fingers, this is us as a community, as a country. It's not only the railway. It's not only Transnet as a country we've walked in a specific position a direction which is clearly not the right direction what we've done not of what we've done so out of all of that and we have got maps like this for every commodity uh, if you look at the first in the left hand side red is what the railways got blue is what the railway should have be careful blue is not everything it is that conforms to all of those items that I've given that make something rail friendly. That is what the railway should have today. If it was a proper functioning railway, well invested, uh, well-capacitated, well run, in all its respects, that's what the railway should have looked like. And the right to right is what the railway should like in the year 2050. Now, there is no option for us to have a failed railway. If we as a country want to be successful by the year 2050, we have to have a railway like that. And that railway is four times bigger than the one we currently have. So somehow, with all of these things that we do, with the rail policy and all of these things, we have to build a railway that's four times bigger in GFB. And that just says what the growth is, it's about 30, uh, Jan-David referred to to some extent, 30 billion ton kilometers is missing. It is just missing. It should have been there. Now, if you just look at the heavy oil lines, I've done the same sum. The problem with this one is what I've said before. Most of it is on the so There's not a lot of blue on the left-hand side. This is what it should be in the future. We would still have to make the review lines two times bigger if we want to achieve what we want to do for now. It's, it's not four times, but it is still two times. It still needs to grow. There is one thing that I'll show later on. It needs to grow faster. Because the opportunity to optimize that or the opportunity to capitalize on that is now so it has to grow faster to the point where it is two times bigger than it currently is. Well, bigger in terms of capacity and delivery. We have to come to that level of two times very, very quickly. Otherwise, we're not going to get our other things right. So there's some missing tonne kilometers there. But remember, here, Radisson and Abler, they are missing current freight. There's just missing freight. There's no lines that should be there. Uh, we talked about this, and Andrew referred to this, and I'm very glad he did. This is research that Harris has done in 1977. On the bottom x-axis, X, X this is so important, I spend a minute with it, on the x-axis is 10 kilometre per kilometre. This is one of the most simple ways in which you can measure a railway efficiency. You want to push it up. Now Harris has done all of those films, and he's find this relationship, and the relationship is solid. Because on the left-hand side and the y-axis, you've got cost. The moment you can increase density, which is 10 kilometers per route kilometer, cost comes down. We have to understand that it talks to a lot of things. This is one of the things that made American railways very efficient. Because what have they done? They've increased the 10 kilometers and they've cut their networks. Simple as that. Cut your network. There's other way of doing it. If that piece of network is not profitable, doesn't work, it's a branch line. Nobody uses it. Don't have it. It's as simple as that. Don't have it. Now, this is a short statement. There's a lot of things that you must do. There's a big strategy behind it, I understand. So where is South Africa in terms of this? This is where South Africa and the USA were in 1928. This is as far back data I could get for the USA. We were about to spawn par. We were worse than them, 0.5 were 1.5. We increased faster than them. We got to 7.0. They got to 16 or something like that. I can't read there, but we increased faster than them. But we moved, which is great. Uh, you can index this. This is now doing the same thing that you see in that graph there, but I've indexed it over time. Uh, the red line is South Africa. Uh, the, the dotted line is America. And you know, low and behold, this class on A1, a class A rail, American railways, we've actually beaten them. We've done better than them in terms of density. But, like always, there's a big butt. Or however, you know, ever there's a fancy butt. And this is the fancy butt. It looks like this. So we start in 1928. We'll do the same thing. And we went to 1976. Golden year in our history of railways in South Africa. 1976. We made some progress. And today we have the heavy oil export lines. They are cheap. They're very efficient. Because of this as simple as that they've got massive densities so where are we with gfp where are we there that is where we are with gfp i say it over and over and over again so some people in the audiences have heard me say that before i call that railway cancer a railway like that cannot exist not in the year 2022 it is just not possible it cannot be done there's no way of making it work it is as simple as that so I've indexed that as well, so the blue and the red line is our export lines, the green line is GFP, and you can clearly see that we have not improved since 1976. And then I make a statement, I say, we use the export machines to hide a terrible failure. This is a terrible failure, this is a failure of no, as to do this is just wrong. No country can do this, you shouldn't do this, you're just on a road to disaster. It needs to be fixed and there are certain ways in which to fix it uh, and we have to talk about this way to fix it. So what is the current and future market spaces for heavy oil? Uh, I've heard so that you talk about 8000 8, tons as a solution, 25 tons per axle load or more, I've heard about the 30 tons of more, but I was looking at what what is heavy oil is and I was talking about those things and I said, it's not my job, but you can put down some sort of a definition that maybe is the use of heavy-guided transport engineering to move large volumes of freight. This is what you want to do. Basically in heavy world. But then if you ask yourself in terms of demand, what are we saying? It's what I said earlier. You'd basically need large volume, similar commodity, single or high concentrated ODPs. Maybe distance plays a role or not. So, if there's a reason why I'm talking about that. Because I'm going to ask whether Mining is the only place we're going to use EVIL. I don't think so. I think this technology can play a role in a lot of places, if you think about it. We thought mostly on EVIL is in the supply sense and in the mining industry. But we can work with EVIL in the normal sense and in other industries as well. So if you think about it like that, you say you are to yourself, Red has lost a lot of market share over time in those segments that I've just shown you. And we know that uh, we did lose market share in some of the export commodities, but their role was more than our role. We didn't lose market share; we just uh, we had less of it, if I can say that. But then, in the things that is important, the outstream, market share disappeared to a large extent, if you look at it. But what's going to happen by the year twenty fifty? Volumes will move downstream if we can create the jobs that we want. If we can do the things that we want. If we can beneficiate in the way that we want. There will be much more volumes of finished pilot high school, of intermediate manufacturing, etc. So the question is, can heavy oil be used in those places? I call this the way in which which we've treated our railway, how we've double-crossed ourselves. It's as simple as that. We're losing market share in those areas where there's big growth and we regaining market share in those areas where there is little growth. Which is, sounds not, not a right thing to do, but is it or is it not? So then I went back to, this is a 70 year old tool, 72 year old tool, that's yeah, a Boston, the BCG matrix, we know it, we say if you have my, my market share with this low growth, you've got a cash cow, you should milk this cash cow, we understand that, there's that money to work on the question marks that we've got. Question marks does not mean we don't do it, or should we do it? Question mark me, how should we do it? That's what the question mark me. How should we use the money from the cash cow to invested in that, and to get stars, basically. So I took those elements that I've spoken about, I've got the export iron ore, the coal there, it comes out of a freight demand model. our expectation of growth, which is not zero, just remember that there will still be growth, up to the year 2050 and beyond. And on the left-hand side, you look at other things, like, for instance, domestic mining, finished palletized goods, etc. Where there will be massive growth, but no rail market share at the moment. So what do we do about it? First we look at the rail-friendly freight of those segments, and they exist. But I then took it a step further, and I went to India. We just went to India, and we have a freight flow model for India as well. Somebody spoke about India earlier. I'm gonna remember now where it was. Uh, India's got about five billion tons of freight, with 21% of market share. We uh, asked ourselves what happened with Indian market share. It really came down over the years. Uh, we wanted to concentrate on one of those dedicated freight corridors that was mentioned earlier. We looked at the Eastern Corridor as such. We asked ourselves what has happened with Indian market share. And why? Because rail freight in India is quite cheap compared to uh, trucks. But at the same time, it should have been cheaper because in India, rail freight subsidizes passengers. Basically what you see in that graph. And why does it happen? If you look at that graph, you look at India, is because the population of India is mobile. They get cheap transport, to go everywhere, they do the things that should have been with us. If you live in India, you can offer your you can offer your labour anywhere for more or less three. Which I wish we could do in this country. But this is the problem. If you look at that, India's big problem is capacity. Is capacity for the whole rail system. That's why they decided to develop this dedicated freight corridors. Now I asked myself the question about heavy oil in in India, and I said 200 million tons could be moved center to center between those seven blocks that I've mentioned there. I looked at the eastern corridor, there's at least 20 million tons that you can load in one place in one form containers, offloaded in another place in the same form containers, and you can move rail shuttles up and down. Heavy oil rail shuttles up and down, so all you have to do in terms of a railway, which is what we're doing with our heavy or railways. Just fill them with containers, you have the Indian gauge, it's going to be easy to have uh, custom-made containers that actually occupy and maximize the gauge, and you have a heavy oil line. Now what's missing in this one, it doesn't have nice terminals on both sides. So we looked at the terminal in Kolkata. And we said to yourself, we you look at the terminal in Kolkata and we can create a hub where all of this is offloaded. This would be the RVCT of the city of Kolkata for the reception of containers. That is just the way I want you to think. If you can do that, and we've done the calculation, I won't go into the detail, you'll save the economy of India, 3 billion dollars per annum, per annum. Save the economy, not even talking about the cost, all of that. That's what the economy will save. We even took this to Varanasi, which is a city between Kolkata and Delhi, and we've realized we can add more to it. There's 10,000 trucks a day that passes Varanasi, coming from Delhi to Kolkata or the other way around. And we realized all of the demand, for them fundamentals for heavy oil exist here. So I'd be, I would be interested to know what the people of India is doing about this. Of course, we did this analysis saying that three years ago, four years ago, what they've been doing at that stage, the dedicated freight the whole uh, line, stretched to Varanasi, basically. So we came back to South Africa, and we said, let's use the same fundamentals. These things that I shown you can all be heavy haul. Simple as that. Now, why do I say Cape Core and Cape Without any doubt, if we have a heavy haul orientated container terminal, That's really big, that's got fantastic capacity in three places. Cape Town, Johannesburg and Durban. We can move heavy old shuttles up and down those two cities, those three cities. And I can tell you it will be more than 20 million tons. And it will save this economy a huge, huge, huge amount of money, if we can do that. I don't know where these terminals must be. Uh, one of them, somebody has threatened me if I mention a name, but I'm going to mention a name, just an example. The one could be Belcon. Um, we're thinking at the moment, we're busy with a study, it could maybe be closer to Greifelghtane, it's Bradley, you one that you build. I don't want to skate the reefs. So I just mentioned it, you know how I think. other one could be Tambo Springs, but you build massive terminals there that behaves like that behaves like a heavy oil line them. So that for me is the dream, and I've got my BCG I say it's a dream. But what is our current dilemma? Where are we now? So we first looked at GFB, we say to ourselves, okay, what is going on with GFB? And we've done a sum, and we want to make a statement that we are quite certain about, that the current state of the railway is costing this country, in general freight, about 100 billion per annum. We counted it up to, 20, to 50. I spoken to a whole bunch of economists. I'll put a multiplier of two there because you're spending the money anyway and you're spending it in the country, but you're spending it inefficiently and if you spend it at the correct place, uh, you, have, uh, you have additional capital resources that you could use and um, we think that's what it is. So the question is, what is that loss for export mining where rail is an enabler? Now, we've heard... Figures before and I've looked at this calculation over and over and over again and there's many ways in which you can do this calculation there's a lot of things that you can consider how much commodities can I get you to see without the railway for instance is one thing we have a hugely fluctuating fluctuating uh, coal price for instance now it's high and now it's low so which coal price will you use etc we have dreams that this year the last one is big I think we worked at probably a guess of 54 million tons for this year, um, you, what should the upper limit be? Is it the contract at 70 or is it the 78? That's a proven, proven throughput that has been done by the railway before. You can really go on and you can beat the sum to death. But one thing is true, it's a lot. <laughs> I can't say anything else. It's, just, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. We think, ah, maybe it's in the region of, of 95 billion. And here you have to multiply it by three. We get the, the total economic impact. It means if it's that, we are losing a billion a day, or 22 million during the time of my presentation. Okay, so if you add my presentation to another one, we could buy one of these locomotives that we can't get. Uh, it is as simple as that. We just, and it just tells me, and and we say this over and over again. It is not only Transnet. There is a huge amount of people in South Africa whose fingerprints is on this murder weapon. But we cannot let this continue. We have to fix this, not in a week's time, we must fix this tomorrow. Because this money is not coming back. Every day that you lose it, it's gone forever. It's gone forever, it's as simple as that. And why, why do I say everybody's fingers on this murder weapon? My office was next to the videos, who's where he wrote this report. I started working for the railways in 1979. That was on the 11th floor of what this then called the Paul Kruger building, later on in House, there next Bramfontein station. He missed this. He did not realize that the railway is not as complete as it should be. We must build this heavy-haul container lines between those three cities. Right then when the road was deregulated, right then when the trucks coming to market, you should have built a railway that looks the way that it should look. You missed that. I went six months ago. I got on my bicycle where I visited Dr. Anton Moorman. I don't know if any one of you remember him. He was the first managing director of Transnet. So about six months ago. I went to visit I said, Dr. Moorman, when you formed this company, because he, was, he formed the company, what is the thing that worried you the most? He said, well, just two things. First thing, the pension fund. Well, we know that. The second thing, GFB in its current form, is not a viable business. He knew it. He knew it 32 years ago. Uh, I asked him what he did about it, and that was a different discussion, etc. Uh, but they knew it. Uh, and attempt to rationalize the network started thing. We had a thing called Spurnet B, R, A, and B. Spurnet B was this piece that we would have cut out. Later on we called it link rail. That just never happened. You can't go on with a railway where you didn't do it. You have to rationalize the railway, (laughs) otherwise it's not going to work. At that stage, the uh, corridor volumes became available. I say it became available because me myself did that research and submitted to the government, uh, to to management at that stage. The first ideas about heavy heavy domestic intermodal was formed. If you're interested, I still sit with those reports in my office and none of this was done then moving south africa came out fantastic work and moving south africa said corridor 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 over and over again Uh, it just wasn't done it just wasn't done so this is in. and now what have we done in the middle of the previous decade this is restructuring upon when i asked the railway what are you doing and i'm not talking about the current people but please learn from that You can't endlessly restructure. That does not solve the problem. When I talk to industry, I say, I've spoken to a clever guy today, he knows what to do. And tomorrow when I arrive there, he's not there anymore. Now (laughs) let's look for somebody else. They say that. And if you continue with endless restructuring, what are you doing? Uh, Some people say you're moving the desk chairs on the Titanic. You've heard that one, didn't you? But in the middle of the previous decade, We moved the deck stairs on the Titanic and some people who couldn't get a seat, we sent them downstairs to blow more holes in the Titanic. That is what we've done. Now, this just means that right now. We have a huge, huge task ahead of us. I listen to people who speak, that I've heard speak now. I heard Andrew, I heard Portia, and I heard huge commitment to fix this. But at the same time, I just want to say, and I listen, listen to the Mining Council, the Minerals Council, there's huge commitment for all of those people to fix it. But I hope tomorrow you all sit together in a war room and work on this. Not, not in a week's time. I hope there's a war room somewhere where every day some of your clever people go to this war room and fix this thing. And why do I say that? If I get to my last cell, I say that, it, I'm sorry to make that statement, I am not an engineer. The returns to every old dead city, density, remember what I said before, was created by engineers and squandered by management. That whole statement that I've made there, and management here, I'm not referring to the current management of Transnet, I'm referring to all the non-engineers that messed us up over the last 30 or 40 years. That whole group of people, I I can, if you ask me over tea, over lunch, or I'll tell you tonight who those people are, (laughs) I will tell you. I don't want to shoot a gun here at at the current management. They're trying and they're trying to get people together. They're trying to collaborate. They must just continue that effort and make it as hard as possible and as fast as possible. It's critical. We don't have time to play games around this. We must just get this done. But there's a lot of people in history that got their, as I've said, their fingerprints on this murder weapon in that sense. So basically what I'm saying in terms of the way forward in terms of technology, we must milk the export machines. There, there's no doubt about it. We must get out of... We can make statements like say, but the future is not in coal. I, I know all of that. But right now there's a future in coal. People are buying it and they're giving us a huge amount of money for it. So right now we must milk them. And then we have to start thinking uh, about domestic intermodal and heavy intermodal. Different loading units that you engineers will start to look at. A, stand, a non-standard container like we have in America and, and in and Europe. Different wagons, maybe well wagons, so that we can maximize clearance. You have to start looking at increased axle load for at least those two lines. Durban, Johannesburg, Cape Town. Or alternatively, we start thinking about standard gauge. Develop and design the standard gauge in such a way that we can have that. Or alternatively even... I have increased accolades now so that we can run 200 wagon trains and move those containers in shuttles between those three places that I've mentioned. Uh, You have to think about different types of terminals that looks like an RBCT and behaves like an RBCT but handles containers as such and different terminal equipment. Now if you think about that, I'm nearly done. I say heavy intermodal must behave like heavy mine. If you can get it to behave in the same way and it means that the commercial arrangement must be the same. Transnet does not sign, as far as I know, an agreement with all the mines, all of them. You want a place like RDCT, you deal with them. Transnet, uh, if it has to do commercial work, sometimes struggle a bit. Leave the commercial and then outsource this thing or wholesale the aggregators. Like 3 like RDCT, people like that. You have a limited commercial reach by the whole Just one person that does this. That's typical old setting, and maybe this terminal will have to have shareholding that is shared by everybody and you have to consider open access. Now I had mentioned that in my last slide. We're talking about vertical separation. I don't know how this is going to work in this space. There's a few things that we need to think about because this thing is basically a pipeline and your whole every old technology has got to do between uh, about the relationship between the wheel and the line. Uh, but we must definitely talk more and more and more about horizontal separation between the, the, the low volume lines and high volume lines and cut that out or use it in a different way. Uh, the separation, interestingly enough, between terminal and the rail, the horizontal separation there, we already have in heavy oil basically. RBCT, as far as I know, does not belong to Transnet. We already do that. We can do the same thing with intermodal heavy oil as such and then there's the Russian model where we have a lot of locomotive operators and you have recon all arrangement. Uh, Maybe we can think about that as well, because that's what it tells us. My last slide said the future of heavy oil is not only mining, but the future of heavy oil is dependent on mining right now. Because we need that money to fund future expansion and other technologies. We need that money as a country to fund things like the development of this country, creating jobs, beneficiation, things like that. We really, really need to do that.